Hello, unfiltered friends, and welcome to another episode. Today we have on Under the Desk News. V is an incredible content creator who reports the news under a desk, wearing a suit, because why not? They are insightful. They are funny. One of my major takeaways from this episode was deciding the type of experience I was going to have before showing up to a place and sticking to it. I've already applied it. It's great. Before we continue, if you want behind the scenes on Unfiltered Friends, you want to participate in the growth of this podcast, go to Patreon, patreon.com slash unfilteredfriends. And without further ado, under the desk news. Welcome to the Unfiltered Friends Podcast. Before we introduce you to our next friend, I want you to take a moment to think about everything that led you to where you are right now. Do you see how strong you are? Do you see how great your story is? I hope you do. And I hope you learn great lessons and get inspired by our next friend's story on the Unfiltered Friends podcast. So hello. Welcome Hi. to the podcast. Thanks. What's going on, friends? Well, I mean, I've, I, I, it was awesome that you showed up when you did being like, hey, I'm down to do the podcast now because I had kind of like quit. Not yeah. quit, but put it on a temporary hold mm-hmm. because... I was doing too many things and I wasn't able to dedicate. And you understand as also a podcaster, like it's a lot yeah. of work. And you were talking about having an engineer. I need to get one of those. I am the PA that gets the coffee and I am the CEO of this entire podcast. <laughs> no, it is honestly of all the things I've ever done in my life. Podcasting is the most emotionally challenging Mm -hmm. and truly like intellectually challenging preparing a podcast episode is I thought like, well, I like to talk and I do the TikToks every day and I put those together. Like should be easy. No wrong. No. Cause there's so many elements. If you want to promote it, like, especially with the adding the video element in there, do you use video on your podcast? So I am lucky that I got my podcast through Lemonada Media. So there's a whole media company and I'm one of the shows on that network, essentially. And what's lucky about that is I truly don't know anything about computers or podcasting or technology (laughs) or anything like that. So I have a producer, there's an assistant producer, there's a writer helper, there's engineers, there's a whole company behind the interesting that makes it what it is. Because there has to be, because right. it is such a specialized, intense and crazy skill. I mean, there's like, you know, guy with a microphone hops on, just talks about whatever. Sometimes that works for certain people when you're trying to structure essentially like programming mm-hmm. that has like a beginning, a middle and an end that has to be fact based and not have a lot of like ums in between it. I mean, that this is the hardest thing I've ever done the, ever. The um thing I've been working. I'm not an um person. I'm a so person. So, per- yeah. And I have been uh, doing Toastmasters to work on that. Have you ever done yes. Toastmasters? No, but I did go to school for theater undergrad. Mm. So I learned a lot. I had the ums and the so's beat out of me mm-hmm. by very mean theater professors <laughs> in New York who, when they weren't telling me that I wasn't enough of whatever. It was that day. So kind. We're telling me, 
you know, your breath sucks. The way you talk is terrible. <laughs> you know, do these people just sign up for this to berate young actors or something? Yes, <laughs> I truly believe that. I've had a couple really good theater teachers, typically people who had already been successful working actors, mm-hmm. not necessarily like were a star one time and then decided to teach people who had like long, consistent careers as either character actors or like Shakespeare in the Park type people or went to, you know, school where they really were still studying acting as a craft and not as like a star making vessel. And then I've had some bad, Oh my God, some, they just, I don't know. Yeah, I can say this. They just removed my voice and diction. There it is. See, now I'm starting to choke <laughs> because I'm thinking about him. Don't stress. Getting all choked up. <laughs> they just removed my voice and diction teacher from my undergraduate degree from campus for being what? a bad guy. <gasps> Isn't that, it's so disappointing. It's just like after a while, you're just like, who can I think is a de- who think a de- is a decent person? Like you just not like, this guy, but no, the, <laughs> but were they decent or were no. they cr- okay? So they were oh, God, already. No. <laughs> so this particular teacher, um, and if we don't say where I went to college or what his name is, I feel very safe about it. Okay, uh, he was. It was his first year teaching my freshman year. And I knew that year because we used to do stuff like, oh, if uh, this professor asks you to come like after hours to like have your diaphragm checked or like you're breathing or you need like extra because this is the thing with theater school. It's incredibly <laughs> physically touching. My you brain have to. diaphragm, my brain went birth Oh, you were control. thinking different stuff. Oh, like, yeah. Uh, no, he wanted. What? <laughs> I'm not sure that he often really knew the difference but anyway <laughs> he was he he probably would have preferred that one yeah so he would you know theater school is very touchy you do need the ballet instructor is correcting your posture the voice and diction type teacher is correcting your posture and like your your stomach and different things and when he would say you know you have to come after hours to like meet with him we would always go in groups so it would always be like and no girl ever went to his office alone and that was the first year he was on campus so i think you know, everyone knew. I'm glad that he's gone now. Everyone knew. I mean, he's that guy. That's that's kind of how it goes, though. Like, um, I, I I don't. So, hmm. the, I'm also trying to tread lightly when I speak about this. Um, the Me Too movement when it came through. Yeah. Um, one of the big actors that was known for doing things inappropriately to men. Yeah. I also have a story with that person, mm. and. The way that the way that that power structure works is, okay, this person is absolutely being inappropriate with me. But if I say something, one, I'm just an extra on set. Two, the set shuts down. Everyone loses their job. Three, a lot of people don't care. Like, I think people don't grasp it. Like, not everyone cares about that sort of thing. So this stuff goes on for long periods of time because there's a power structure in place. So you just kind of like find a way to finagle your way out of it or to feel as safe as possible, but it doesn't stop it from happening. No. And I've been very sensitive, honestly, to men's abuse struggles because my very good friend in college, uh, very handsome, is now a male model, just a lovely, wonderful person, is a heterosexual man, used to constantly get touched or Mm -hmm. manipulated by the teachers in different ways. And then I've seen throughout his career, even the way that you know, his complaints just go completely ignored or they're like, oh, you're just, you just think everybody wants you because you're uh-huh. handsome. He's like, no, that's not what's happening. 
or you would actually do better in your chosen profession if you were bisexual, at least. I mean, what do you care? And it's like, he'd be like, cause I care. Cause that's abuse. And, you know, oftentimes I was one of the only people that he was able to kind of like vent to about this because until recently there wasn't a place where we even kind of believed the victims. Right. And mm-hmm. now we're still falling so short of where we need to be yeah. as a society with believing people. Um, but man, yeah, the early 2000s to really like 2016. So, so uncomfortable for so many people. Yeah. Uh, my, the incident that happened to me, not with a, but just on my college campus was around 2001. And uh, the cops laughed at me when I went yeah. to report it because it doesn't happen to men. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, and I even tried recently, not recently, but last year to like talk about it publicly. Uh, but what I found was people kind of gatekeeping mm-hmm. that sort of trauma. So it just, I just ended up being quiet about it altogether because it was just so like re-traumatizing talking about right. that stuff. I was just trying to connect with other survivors, but I think. It's such people- a hard thing, mm-hmm. especially for men, because you, you are, have experienced something that women have experienced predominantly. Yes an abuse that occurred because of a man. And so then having a man present in their sacred circle can be, you know, respectfully difficult because they're like, okay, but there's another guy here and I don't trust any guys, even Mm -hmm. if those guys also experience what I experienced. And it, it really is just so terrible. And part of the shame that men have to carry silently and quietly. And then, you know, you start to second guess yourself too, right. Where you're like, well, maybe I was, deserving of it somehow or maybe i should man up and it's like i mean yeah the therapist i went to to deal with this stuff specifically was i wanted a a man and i wanted a man who had worked at a crisis center for that sort of thing and he would describe like being a man in one of those centers was also like really difficult because he would just get perpetually attacked and it's like I, I totally understand not feeling safe because I also mm-hmm. don't feel safe in a lot of places. Uh, I just hope we can get to a point where like we don't say like this is only this support is only available for like part of the population um, right. while also still acknowledging the fact that it is more rampant uh, for women than it is men. I acknowledge that wholeheartedly. Yeah, it is. I think a place that we can potentially start with that is removing the idea that masculinity means consumption and that means consumption of anything that's offered to you. Right. So if it's another guy who wants to hook up with you and you're not gay, well, who cares? Right. Like that it is what it is or, or not being able to talk about it. Or if it's a woman who is coming after you and this has happened to some of my guy friends as well, where there was a woman who was conventionally attractive, who wanted to be with one of them. They didn't want to be with them uh, and ended up, you know, being drunk or being taken advantage of or something bad happening to them. And, uh, you know, their friends and the people they tried to find comfort in were like, yeah, but she's hot. She hurt you. Like, no, (laughs) it doesn't matter how attractive the abuser is if it's abuse. And that goes for everybody, you know? So I'm curious, uh, are you are a non-binary person? Is that how you identify? Yes. Okay. So yes and no. Here's the thing. I'm also a 40-year-old person. And I'm also 40. Yeah. Oh, it's the yes. best age. Yes. And everyone thinks I'm younger, which I really appreciate. Same. I'm but, like, sure. But when they yep. hear you're 40, they act like you just said you were 90. And I'm very Correct. confused. Like, am I supposed to be decrepit at this age? Like, I'm like, <laughs> first of all, 
Yeah, we're we're good. 40, 40 is the new 25, apparently. Sure. Because <laughs> um, folks will say to me like, oh, man, when you're 30, you're going to learn. And I'm like, oh, I did. Yes, you're yep. correct. Your early 30s are very <laughs> difficult. Um, so here's what I like about non-binary. I am so impressed with the way that young people have developed new language for us to get ourselves out of the boxes that were offered to us before and kind of like give us a new space to feel like we belong in. Right. Cause I'm not like huge on labels, but I do appreciate that labels give us a very easy place to find community Yes, and to find other people who are like us. Right. And so for that, super appreciate it. And when non-binary started to become you know, more common language. It was only a couple of years ago. And I remember the first time someone said to me, I was actually told they were like, well, you're non-binary. And I was like, you know what? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes, I am. And they were like, yeah, you can use, you know, like they, them pronouns. And I was immediately reminded of how before I was out about being queer and like my mom would ask like who I was dating or something. I'd be like, oh, they're so cute. Oh, I like mm. them. And it, and it made sense to me in that immediate moment that it was a way to address a person without including gender, at least in my feelings about it. And so I like that they, them pronouns, and I do identify as a non-binary person, but, you know, everybody's journey is so different. Um, I also identify as a woman. I lived as a woman for 37 years before right. I knew that there was such a thing that was a little bit different way of identifying. Um, I still exist and thrive and enjoy being in spaces that are for women. I still feel like that's mm -hmm. for me. Um, similarly, there's nothing cooler than when someone like a store clerk sees you from the back and goes, sir, can I help you? Because there is a certain kind of respect mm -hmm. that people have in their vocal tone when they say, sir. sir. To you. And for that one minute, I feel like so powerful. <laughs> So, so the the reason I I ask is because you 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 touched on masculine, yeah, and you hear a lot. I, I've been seeing a lot of content where people sure. are talking about in order for a woman to be in her feminine, the man has to be in her mass uh, his masculine, so she can relinquish. And I the what I what I'm hoping for is that we can get away from the idea that masculine means male and feminine no. means female because. I'm, I've been labeled as divine masculine because I do have a lot of feminine qualities. That doesn't mean that I'm part woman. That just right. means I have aspects of my behavior that are deemed feminine, which is a whole other conversation. Right, like being caregiving, being thoughtful, being a good listener, well-groomed, you know, that kind of stuff. That's the <laughs> stuff that ma that's made people question if I was gay my whole life. Right. It's very, it's very sad to me because we are putting ourselves in these boxes where we have to be this certain thing if we were this when we were born. And it's just like, right. I hope we can get to a point where understanding that there needs to be a balance of masculine and feminine within sure. all of us. And that's not specifically for one gender or another, which there are, there's not one gender or another, but that's right. a whole other debate with not in this room. We're all on the same page about that, but. I know. Well, here is something that really helped me with that, that maybe will help the listeners too. I um, have, am Albanian. My family is Albanian and Irish, but my mother's family is Albanian. And there is, um, there are some Greek stories. Greece is right next door to Albania for people who don't know. So mm -hmm. we caught a lot of Greek stuff growing up. Yep. Uh, but I remember 
talking about the Greek gods and thinking they were the coolest thing ever, right? Like Hercules, Zeus, Hera, all that. And in fact, for centuries and centuries, the Greek gods were masculine and feminine based on power or compassion. Mm. And it was, they were non-binary entities and in many cultures still are. It was Christianity that kind of applied this label of like all of the um, power, fire, et cetera. Those were the men, Mars and Zeus and all that. Those were the men's. And then all of the caring ones, everything to do with beauty, theater, art, those were the women's, but they were in fact never male or female. They were non-binary entities that represented power and release. And that to me, I was like, that makes sense to me because if I think about the parts of myself, there are many parts of myself that are based in power and there are just as many parts of myself that are based in relief mm-hmm. or in compassion or in caring. Um, and I think that that understanding that kind of like vibe within yourself then you could say, okay, masculine or feminine, but is it power or is it relief? And I was like, yes. Yes. <laughs> and, and and that's what we all have. I mean, there's not a person here who can't say, okay, there are parts of myself that identify as power and I identify as relief. Great. Right. So I have really enjoyed that and really kind of like held on to the fact that this idea of the masculine and the feminine and the way that it's broken out societally now um, was really not until an awful Pope in the 1600s decided. So my grandmother used to say there's like two types of people in the world. There's a type of person who wants to pull you up to where they are. And there's a type of person who wants to hold you down because they're afraid that they'll get left behind. Mm. And so I thought that was a very compassionate way to see people not as evil or as manipulative or malicious, right? There's folks who have the confidence to pull other people up and there's folks who will hold you down because they're afraid that they'll get left behind. And I was like, okay. And I think when it comes to things like pronouns or different stuff that they might consider new, they're afraid that they're somehow less special or that they're somehow being left behind in a world that they didn't realize had changed because mm-hmm. we've been using this language for years, but for a lot of folks, it is new to them and people don't like to do new things. They don't, no. <laughs> they, they pretty much <laughs> don't like to do new things. And you'll learn this. Like I went to school for marketing in grad school. Cause when you go to school for theater, I mean, you got to do something after that. <laughs> and I remember in sales school learning that people will instinctively, instinctively say no, even if they want it, because it's just easier to say no while your mind works in the background on like re-justifying that you deserve this thing or that you should have this thing or this thing is safe. That is just, that's just how we are. That's how we're built as entities to resist until we're totally sure. Mm -hmm. So when these things come out that are quote new or feel like, um, you know, somebody might be being left behind or society is changing in a way that they don't want to, or can't keep up with, um, oftentimes, It's exactly that. They're just afraid of being left behind. And we see this with reformed uh, far right. And I have a really strong conservative audience on Under the Dust News, which I'm very proud of. And some folks are like, why? And I'm like, because this is a place where anybody wants to listen. And the fact is like, we are a lot more alike than not. It's just, they haven't been told that they belong over here too. They've been told you only belong on the far right circles you have to protect this far right circle. And if you don't, then, you know, all hell's going to break loose and you're going to lose everything. That is a very strong motivator for mm-hmm. people. But when you make them feel included or you or they get to know 
the people that they formerly hated up front, you see just such a bright spot in humanity that really makes doing the work that I do possible. Almost every time, it's just a misunderstanding. It's not that people are inherently hateful. Oftentimes, especially with some of the far right that maybe aren't totally far right, like they're, they just went there because they felt like that's where they belonged. Mm-hmm. You will find um, that they have incredible protective instincts. These are people, if we go back to like our caveman times, they would have been the ones to protect the camp. They would have been the ones to fight the line. They would have been those people. These are the folks who sign up for the military, like, which I think is just on one side, incredible. And on the other side, unhinged, my boy, like, what are you doing? (laughs) Why is that your choice? (laughs) But this is their choice. And it's such a true inside of them calling. And I, I believe that from them. I believe that people are born to be protective. And unfortunately, some of the folks who are manipulating that good, good faith instinct are now weaponizing people's protective mm-hmm. instincts against folks who are not going to hurt them. The gay community is not going to hurt you. Women are not going to hurt you. Abortion is not going to hurt you. Any of these things that you've deemed progressive, terrible, liberal ideas oftentimes are not your actual enemy. But, and, if, but if they don't believe that they're at war with these right. things, then they no longer feed the machine. Well, they can't be controlled. Right. right. And so- That is, I mean, I have some great conversations with folks that I don't think people would expect to be watching under the desk news, Um, but I have spent enough time in the world to know that, of course, they are. Um, People who are curious, they've been told that they're not smart. They've been told that all they can do is this thing and this thing is fight or dig your heels in or hate. And why religion is so effective. A religion can give you a sense of peace that nothing else can in the ways that it will tell you that they have the answer. Mm-hmm. They know exactly the answer. And if you do exactly these things, then you're going to get to go to heaven. And that's the same. I, that's a very powerful motivator. That is the same thing that happens a lot with political indoctrination. It runs the same exact course as religious indoctrination, which is if you do these things, you will have the reward of paradise. And even if you are presented with information that counters what you're thinking, I've noticed that, uh, especially on the right, because I get involved with very complicated discussions as well. I just like to, because it helps me learn. And it also Mm -hmm. um, helps me understand, like even when I was doing LGBT advocacy, I was sitting down with homophobes and talking to them and people would get mad at me. They're like, you're advocating for this. I was like, no, I'm I'm understanding this. And I'm also disrupting their way of thinking with new information. And I think too often these discussions are about changing the other person in one conversation, where really it should just be an exchange of information Mm -hmm. between two people who might think differently. But what I think what happens is, is like these ideas are no longer ideas, they're identity. So when right. you attack those ideas, they you attack their identity and it becomes instead of, I have this idea that you're challenging, it's you're challenging me at my core. And even mm-hmm. if that person is provably wrong, it's about might over right. Can mm-hmm. I say it strongly enough where in my mind I become right regardless of whether I am or not? And that just Mm -hmm. kills all discourse. It just kills all of it. And sometimes that's the point, right? Is to pull the kill switch by saying, 
you're the thing I hear the most, you're trying to trick me. And I'm like, I'm not trying to trick you. You are smart. You can put the pieces together. The people that you've been following haven't given you that kind of true freedom to put those pieces together, but you have always had them in you and you still have them in you. You know, if this makes sense or if it doesn't make sense, it is very hard for us to leave abusive relationships. I know Mm -hmm. personally, same. (laughs) and this is this version. It is a version of abuse, religious, political, cult, anything, you know, and you can pick whichever side. Um, It is a version of abuse that is very difficult to escape because it is part of your identity. It's part of your community. It's part of what's made you feel safe and right. And it is very hard to break someone of that. So you won't break them of that. And I think that's important for people to know you personally will not break them from that. Mm -hmm. You can provide a space that they can feel like they also belong in. And then they'll come and spend some time over here. And then, you know, we'll see what happens. But this is always a space of belonging. Now, where I think justifiably, the queer community to just stay in this world uh, get sick of this is that for decades we have been the bigger person. We have been the understanding one. We have been the educator and we could say this for all different types of groups, but speaking for the queer community, as I'm a part of that group, Oh man, I hate being the bigger person. It's but there's so just much not, more fun being so, petty. It's it just- <laughs> is. It's so hard to be the bigger person. And sometimes I don't want to, and sometimes I get so frustrated and so mad and I can think of so many mean ass things I want to say. And then I just realize like, I'm only perpetuating what this person believes is true, which is that I'm a liberal East coast academic who is looking down on them and doesn't understand them. When in fact I grew up poor as shit, Chris, I (laughs) I am not an East coast. I have a hard time reading. Like it's uh, we'll get into that another day, but you know, like it's not that I grew up with Republican parents. I grew up in a, a working class town where everybody's dad was a factory worker, you know? So, and I love those people. Those are my people. And those people happen to be a little bit, you know, more gravitating towards the far right right now because somebody told them that it was the gays that were ruining their forward mobility and that were ruining the American dream. And it's not. Okay. So I'll ask you this then. So bigger person, fine. But are there Mm -hmm. some subjects where like, if someone feels a certain way, because politics has turned into much more than politics. It's become very, very personal. It has been for a long time for a lot of groups and it's become even more so. Are Mm -hmm. there subjects where like, if someone is in your life and they feel a certain way about something that you feel really strongly about that will cause you to not associate with that person anymore? Yes. Um, When in Trump's last year of his presidency, he was flirting with the idea of banning queer people from adopting. And that is something that is still very much the Republican Party has that on their wish list. Okay. I also think it's weird that we identify as Republican or Democrat because I don't recall that even being a thing up until 2016. Truly, like, I just don't remember political identity being such a strong part of I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, and I stand for everything that party has put forth. Like it was never really like that. It was much more about the charisma of the particular politician. And honestly, there wasn't that big a difference between what side they were on. Have you heard I that? Digress. Had have you heard that quote that George Washington made about the two-party system? No. This is his farewell address. Listen to this. 
However, political parties may now and then answer popular ends. They are likely in the course of time and things to become potent engines by which cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men will be enabled to subvert the power of the people and usurp for themselves the reins of government, destroying afterwards the very engines which have lifted them to unjust dominion. This is Jeez. the father of our country being like, hey, this whole political party thing, don't do it. And we did we did it anyway. Right. Yeah. It it makes complete sense because it makes it very easy to do tug of war instead of capture the flag. Right. It's very like, OK, well, how many people could we get on one side and muscle our way into pulling the other side into the mud? It's a pendulum. To- it feels like it's just swinging like crazy left and right. It does. And it's it's just it's so dysfunctional right now. It really is off the chain. And we, that's a whole other, you know, like going into like the Pelosi, uh, Mitch McConnell drama of the eighties to this point and their grudges against each other and how we are just living in their world. They're both being petty people. Why do I have to be the bigger person, but the people running this stuff can be so petty. No, they're terrible. uh, Both of them. And I say that with personal experience And they have built a system by which they are the only two voices and every single senator in the nation that is on Team Red answers to Mitch McConnell in Kentucky, who barely wins his races. And every single Democrat in the country who answer who answers to the Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi. And so they have in that way all of the state control and all of the people control because the Congress is supposed to speak for the people and the state is supposed to speak or the Senate is supposed to speak for the state, but they have essentially usurped all of that together. They are two sides of the same coin. They are one side of the same coin and everyone else is on the other side. And those are my true feelings about those two. They have directed who would be selected for the presidential candidate. They have dropped money into senatorial races and country in um, states that they don't belong in. You're going to tell me Nancy Pelosi, who is the can we swear on this podcast? Yes, go is ahead. The, let off. Oh, God. See, this is where I, oh, man, this is under the desk news off book. Do it. Um, you going to tell me Nancy Pelosi has represented San Francisco since 1989, uh, not even 1986. She doesn't have anybody in her whole district that's smart enough to hold that office. You don't trust anybody, Nance. You don't want to pass the baton. On, and she's done a lot. Absolutely pass the baton and be a mentor and allow the democracy that you claim to support to like flourish. Same thing with Mitch McConnell. Why are you harassing Mitt Romney in Utah constantly about the things he's making decisions for his state? Right. And Mitt Romney is probably of all the people who have represented a state, he's pretty dead on for his state. Like, right. He's pretty good. You know, He knows what they want. So it, it just, that kind of crap makes me absolutely insane just knowing how these things work and how manipulative they are and how anyone who has challenged their power has been absolutely just destroyed even if they were in their own party and that vibe is now the way that we see the general public yeah responding to things when if uh my basic understanding is that what's going on with the supreme court and what's going on with roe v wade was by design by mcconnell for his entire career Oh, like, yeah. it seems like this is his, like, this is like magnum opus. And he's talking about, I can retire, like, I'll retire if this happens. I was like, that's because you did, you did Here's, the thing that you've been trying to do your entire career. 
Here's the thing with them. And this is the problem with not having term limits and people being in Congress for all of this time. Now, Roe v. Wade was passed in 1973, and none of these folks were in office themselves in 1973, but they were getting close. Nancy's father was, I think, the mayor of San Francisco or something like that. She comes from a political family. She knew where she was going. Mitch McConnell, same thing. He knew where he was going. And when that was passed and you had the religious evangelical right starting to form a political party, because this wasn't a thing prior to that, they passed Roe v. Wade the same freaking year that they took prayer out of school. And that became the moment. Right. Mm. So what did what did those two issues do for us? It allowed them to fundraise and become millionaires. And that has always been the carrot was we have to protect Roe or we have to take Roe down. Nobody gave honestly a shit about abortion prior to this. It was considered women's business. And Mm -hmm. for better or worse, it was not talked about by the men in Congress. They did not care. It was not something that we dealt with. Um, And it, it became this issue as a vehicle for fundraising and as a vehicle for people who truly have no charismatic talent and are not in touch with their communities to have a platform to, to continue to perpetuate their work on. And that carrot of us really thinking they're never going to overturn Roe. What are they going to fundraise on? What are they going to do? That all ended with the Tea Party in 2011 because you had McConnell and, and Nancy who were going to play chicken with each other forever because they were just getting rich in the background and sort of like making it seem like stuff was going on. You had the Tea Party in 2011, which is like the Ted Cruzy, Mo Brooks type folks. Mm-hmm. And they felt left out. So they decided that they were going to dig in on this idea of fiscally responsible, socially liberal. That's right. Okay. Just, I know how I feel about that phrase because I know, I know what it says about someone. What do you think it says? When someone says I am fiscally conservative, liberal on social issues, what does that mean to you? So I I know what it means because I worked as a caterer for years in the mid 2000s and I was in the room at Mitt Romney's RNC with my little freaking like crab cakes on a platter when they were explaining to him talking points on different things in Tampa and they were saying fiscally conservative, socially responsible. That's what people like. They like this idea of us saving and America being rich and prosperous and having money in the bank makes people feel safe. And then on the other side, we're not going to get away from the fact that Mitt Romney was the first governor to sign in marriage equality. So we have to kind of like work that out. He was? Plus, oh, yes. Massachusetts. Mitt Romney was the very first governor to sign, to legalize gay marriage by a state. Yeah, that was 2004. Four. Four when that happened. Yeah. Yep. So they were kind of working on this idea and the idea was to pull moderate Democrats towards the right because Republicans haven't won a popular election in 30 years and their ideas were sort of like dated. They were definitely seen as the old guys party. There wasn't a lot of room. It was like, eh, it wasn't that fun. So they were working with him on that. Now, what I know happens next was when they tried to legislate on the idea of fiscally responsive, socially liberal, it doesn't actually work because if you don't, put money at the state level and federal level into public education roads um, and not, and you can't, you don't just like give it all in tax breaks or if you have huge budget surpluses like they do in Indiana, uh, your people suffer and they don't like that. And so then they won't vote for you. So they actually aren't going to vote for anybody who's fiscally conservative because the meaning of that, at least to the Tea Party Republicans in 2011 was sitting on a bunch of cash while the people of your state struggle. And so when the financial thing didn't really work, they had to 
attack social because that worked. That was something people were willing to vote against. And so since 2010, 2011, um, that was really the issue of Mm. there is no such thing as fiscally conservative, socially liberal. It sounds very good. Uh, It sounds just as good as the Democrats. They just need to pay their fair share. you got to listen for these things that everybody says. Those are decided from the top down. And when you're when you start to catch on to those, then you can start to look at which political candidates um, are there to quote the bachelor for the right reasons Mm. and how many are there because this is a job. This is a job. It's a great job. It's a very cool job. You get paid very well. $174,000 a year. That's a pretty good job. I would. That's how much a Senator and a Congressman get made. Yeah, but you know, there's so much more money. That's just the salary. That's just a salary. You get the best healthcare in the nation you get. And then you do it. Even if you do one session you do one round you get that pension you, you get, get that health care you get lobby you get, you get lobbyist money too you, know you get lobbyist <laughs> money you get book money you get two hundred fifty thousand dollars to go on the speaker circuit every time you show up at an entrepreneurial conference it is so this is the thing like i hope that people remember that this is a job the job is to interpret and create laws that protect and serve the people and when we say things like well i don't want a politician to do a politician's job we get in trouble there also i do believe that anyone can be a congressperson and should be the congress is the voice of the people we should see hairstylists we should see dog walkers we should see lawyers we should see everybody that's why there's over 400 of them when it comes to the senate you're talking about they used to not vote for senate the same way they do now they used to be more appointed Because it was supposed to be like the best lawyer and the people who were the most educated on the state constitution and how that played with the federal constitution to make sure that states' rights were protected, but they weren't constantly going tit for tat and over like usurping each other and all this Mm -hmm. kind of drama. And, And that's, I mean, so much of this is just people who shouldn't have been in office as long as they have been. It does feel like a death rattle. It feels like this is the last hurrah before this version of politics ends. Um, And I'm grateful for platforms like TikTok because I think we get to see each other as people more than we ever did before. Um, It's just going to take a little bit longer for our politics to catch up. So how do term limits happen? Oh, they're not going to. So we don't uh, even have to answer that one. I was about to say, like the people who would... They're basically They'd limiting their, their own job. Why would right. they do that? They won't. They won't. So do and people just not die? What carrot. happens? Yeah, it's not a big enough carrot for people. There's also a proposal right now uh, floating around in the back rooms and bars of D.C. Uh, to limit the power of the Supreme Court. And this might actually happen mm. to 18 years. Now, 18 years is a full career. That's a generation of laws that you've overseen. Now, there are some people who could be a Supreme Court justice for 40 years. Now we're picking people who are the youngest so we can keep them in the longest. The idea is 18 years is a solid career. You've had an influence on your generation and then you should go away. There should be no lifetime appointments. You shouldn't have to impeach somebody if they're not performing well. There should be some other kind of check and balance because the Supreme Court does not answer to the public the way that Congress does. They don't have to do financial disclosures. Right. What? Gross. No. Don't like that. They don't. They don't, which is why you see Ginny Thomas getting millions and millions of dollars coming out the back back door. They don't have to disclose um, conflicts of interest the same way that Congress does. They're just, they're not held to the same standards whatsoever. Right. And so with the court we have now, um, you know, 
They've just got security detail. They're going to do whatever they want. I looked up and I'll read it to you right now. I was like, okay, why do we have lifetime appointments for Supreme Court justices? And it says, members of the Supreme Court are appointed by a president subject to the approval of the Senate to ensure an independent judiciary and protect judges from partisan pressures. It's just not true. It's literally not true. Like Clarence Thomas literally says directly, I can't, I want to make liberals lives hell. Like this shouldn't be something that someone who is in the highest court in the land should be able to say and still keep their job. Right. There are also no standards for this job. You don't, it's a very odd job in that. Like if I was going to go apply to be a plumber today, they'd be like, okay, well, who did you apprentice with? And I'd be like, oh, I never did. And they'll be like, get the fuck out of here. (laughs) With the Supreme court, it's like, oh, you didn't even go to law school. Now, granted, these ones did go to law school, but it's not required that Mm. you are an expert on the law. It's not required (laughs) that you clerked for any amount of time. It's not required that you did anything before it just, you know, you could be pretty much anyone and get appointed a judgeship. Pretty much anyone in your local community can run for judge because you you ever see like on your local ballots, like vote for this judge, vote for that judge. Yes. They don't have to have been lawyers. They don't have to have been judges. They are elected. It is a very unusual thing the way we do judges. And it is based on a system of honor code that doesn't exist anymore and probably never did. But we were working in smaller circles back then Mm. and truly should be reformed. And like, you know, even the founding father said this, this is supposed to be a document that changes with the times. The things that we say today while they are forming the country you know, we don't want it to be like England, which we just escaped, which just like holds on to power like this. Like, so it's kooky, you know, you'll be back. Right. Yeah, I wish. <laughs> Take you, us back. Be. What's the return policy on this? You might be. <laughs> I would like you to describe. Baby V. Baby V. Who were you growing up? If you could describe who you were growing up, how would you describe that person? So this is going to probably surprise people. I was extremely quiet until like maybe sixth grade. Like I wasn't like this super talkative, outgoing, social butterfly, like, uh, you know, confident person until I was about 12 years old. And my grandmother took me to my first community theater audition mm. and I sang happy birthday and I got in the show and then I got on stage and then I started to learn a lot about like, building community and like being outgoing and being celebrated. But it was not until then. And I was probably 12 that I really felt like I had a voice worth using. Yeah. So baby me pretty quiet. My parents were extremely young when they had me, they're still together. They had two more children after me. Um, and we all grew up as family together, you know? Um, but I grew up in what I would consider like a very normal average American experience. Like both my parents worked. We lived in like a nice house when I was younger. Food security was a, a, a little bit more of an issue than after I was 12. Um, Cause I grew up with my parents. They were like 19 when they had me. So we grew up together. And then by that point in their careers, my brother and sister had a slightly different experience than I did mm. in terms of like what type of resources were available. But mm. I would say in the beginning part, I spent a lot of time with my grandmother who was hilarious and just told the best jokes and was such a kind person and worked so hard and had a lot of trauma in her life. Um, but always like was a hyper present person. And I definitely think I learned my ability to like be very present with people from her. Um, but yeah, we grew up 
what I think is like average and normal, but some folks might consider like middle class, lower middle class. Yeah, that makes sense. So you're talking about about food and uh, maybe some yep. scarcity there. And oh, from yeah. researching, you do you have a real passion for accessibility to especially healthy foods? Yes. Where is that where that came from? And can you talk a little bit about like the initiatives that you take up in order to combat the issue of not having accessibility to healthy foods for people? Yeah. So. The way that I grew up, it was more of a food literacy issue and it was a scarcity issue. Like I can remember my parents kept all their bills in this little wicker owl. And when they would bring the owl out, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to go to my room because they're going to sort which bills they're going to pay. And that Mm. was a very tense conversation, not necessarily between them, but it was a negotiation that I knew we weren't supposed to necessarily see or be a part of as kids. And my mom was really good at doing things like Maybe we would bring our lunch every day, but she would buy like the one snack. It was Gushers that was like made us look like we were with it. Right. So Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have like boar's head lunch meat and like name brand milk or like anything else. But we would have like normal, like a normal little lunch. And then we would have like that one fancy snack. And that was because food is your social capital as a child. It's the first thing that you have that you can trade, barter or use. It is it is the first thing that you're kind of in control of for yourself. So being a kid who was sort of navigating these waters, I understood that very early. And if you have ever been hungry, which everyone in the whole world has, and we think of hunger as like the most hungry person ever, but like you might be hungry right now, right? Like everybody knows what that feels like. I did not want other people to feel that way. Um, My first food equity project was in sixth grade when I was 12, man, this was like, you were just, this was the you, year I did it. You went straight for it. Yeah, man. 12 and 33 are big years in your <laughs> life. So when I was 12, they put a Snapple machine into the school cafeteria. Mm. And I thought this was the worst decision that had ever happened in the history of the world. Cause a Snapple was literally a dollar 25 in 1992. What? And it Even was so expensive. Then? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't remember that. I remember it because it was, it felt so expensive to me because lunch was a dollar fifty, but the Snapple was like a dollar twenty-five. Well, now we had a circumstance in which equity was no longer achievable because there were the kids who had Snapple with lunch and there were the kids that didn't. And kids are fucking mean, Chris. You know mm-hmm. they are. And so if you weren't a Snapple kid, well, then why why aren't you? Oh, you know. So I set out on a mission to decide how I was going to build equity in my lunchroom. And at the time we used to like recycle bottles and cans, you know, and like we, I knew like each thing was worth like five cents and the Snapple was worth like 10 cents because it was glass back then. And so I went to my sixth grade teacher, Ms. Pies, and I asked her about setting up a recycling program for the Snapple bottles that we could then reinvest so that kids who wanted Snapple could get Snapple um, from essentially this like recycling program. Like if you worked in the recycling then you would get like a stipend essentially to buy Snapples. And that's how I created equity in my first food equity program. It's such a hustler. So, oh my God, it was so <laughs> gross though. So we got the big recycling thing and there, it wasn't like, you know, there was no infrastructure for this. So we would have to take all the bottles out and rinse them all out and take all the labels off and get rid of the caps. And then like Mrs. Pies would take us to like the scrap guy who would like buy the glass and like, then we would do this. So, so that was my first time really feeling like food and food equity was extremely important to me as a way to just make people not feel like shit. I wanted everyone to feel like they belonged and like there was a path to things, right? 
So that was the first time I did that. And then throughout my career, I continued to work in food. I worked as a very high-end caterer for a period of time in DC and in Florida. Um, And then I decided that I just selling the most expensive pancake to the richest people was just not a vibe anymore. And I had tried so hard to separate myself from hunger and be a part of this like elite food community. And I did that and I didn't feel any better. So I quit that. And I started working with this group, Hungry Harvest. Uh, You may know us as the people who made ugly produce cool. We delivered to your house. Mm. Imperfect Foods came from Hungry Harvest. I know Imperfect Foods. One of my friends was on the board for them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So this all started at the University of Maryland. um, And the idea there was we would buy food that farmers couldn't sell to retail. We would box it up. We would sell it at a significant discount. So the farmers got a more fair uh, price for their total harvest yield. The customer got a a better access to fresh produce, which is oftentimes something that people see as like impossible to purchase. Um, And then, you know, it kind of like worked out for everybody. There was less food waste, more people got fresh produce and it just felt really good. And also we all that worked there made a decent salary. So that was the first time that I really felt like we nailed it because sometimes you work for a nonprofit and you are very much suffering because nonprofits don't pay very well. Mm -hmm. And then you see like the CEO of your nonprofit making like $4 million a year. Okay. Google that exact salary and it'll bring up someone, the group and you'll be like, Oh my God, I didn't know that. Um, So I just, that was really important to me and it it remained important to me. And then when I saw who food security affected, I knew it wasn't just the poorest of poor people. I knew that because I knew I grew up with it. It it's everyone. And so we started working with veterans programs because the veteran community is the most food insecure minority in America. Um, veterans are considered a minority population. Um, it, it plays into mental health. It plays into health equity overall disease. And it's just something that was really important to me. So that's what I was doing this work, um, ensuring that chronically ill patients were connected to fresh fruits and, and vegetables and also had food education. Uh, and I was able to get the hospitals to pay for it because I could prove to them if they would give me essentially, I think it was like 50 bucks a month. It wasn't even, it was like $34 a month for a diabetic patient. I would get them all the fruits and vegetables they need. And it would reduce the hospital's like cost to treat that patient. And I did. And so they were like making money by giving people fruits and vegetables and yeah. You're just such an impressive person. That's you what just I did. are. I like, <laughs> Like, especially at that age to have like that comp, like, did you have help with the thought processes of this? Like, how do you know to do these things? I think I've always been a helper. And I think when you, my friend Judy had said to me something early on, when you need help, you should find the other people who need help instead of finding the person you think can solve your problem. Because the other people who need help will know a little something. And then you'll know a little something and then you will create a better solution together than hoping that there's some like magic omnipotent guy out there that's going to know how to fix fix food security. So like for me, I knew about um, food insecurity in the veteran and uh, diabetic populations. And in particular, I was an expert on Baltimore, which is where I lived and what food security looked like in Baltimore. And my friend Judy was in Philly and she was an expert on Asian cuisine, in particular Thai. And she was talking about different types of rices that were better for these types of populations and like how easy it is to cook rice and adding things in and like recipes that make sense and really started to give us the language for how to approach food security from a culturally sensitive point of view. And then we started 
looking and saying, okay, the black community values this in their produce box. The uh, Iranian community values this. Uh, I was working in Miami and we had a Cuban population. They wanted to see more tropic, tropical items and they needed more fruit. So when you start to look at it and not say, okay, well, I'm going to solve food insecurity with one silver bullet solution. And you start to say, why are you hungry today? You specifically, or this block then you can really make a difference for those people. And all of those little helps add up to one big help. And oftentimes it's a lot less expensive than the big nonprofits because mm-hmm. it doesn't serve a nonprofit to really solve their problem, right? Like if any of these no. <laughs> nonprofits solved the issue that they were behind, then they would be out of a job. 100%. So I want everyone at home to know you do not make money as a TikToker. No. It is a platform. You have to have it in real life talent yep. and you have to have in real life connections. It is so hard to transition. Even some of the best TikTokers, like I'm going to call her out, call me Chris. I love call me Chris. We were just at VidCon together. We were in the press room, like waiting to do an interview. And we were both so awkward because we are not trained for this. And I was like, how is the acting thing going? And she's like, it's good. It's hard. It's hard. Acting is a craft and a skill. It is different than TikToking. There is not this immediate pipeline from TikToker or YouTuber to major movie star. It doesn't happen. No. I mean, I've watched that for years from, you know, when YouTubers went to Vine and then like Viners Mm -hmm. went to Instagram and like a, a lot of times it doesn't a translate, especially when you also then try to get do doing music and doing acting, oh, yeah. like yeah. hosting. Like you don't just because a lot of people think you're cool on a certain app doesn't mean that you're going to be able to perform in the real world. It's just not right. Real. Like Hank Green has a real life job. Hank Green is so cool. He's so smart. He is the CEO of multiple companies, and he has an entire team of hundreds of people that work with him. That he has an in real life job, and then YouTube and TikTok are platforms that have he you, continues have, to. Have foster. you been to the offices out there? No, not yet. I, I went out there probably like three or four years ago, and it was just like because I'm a, a old school YouTuber, just like him. So it's like really yeah. cool watching. Like I remember the first VidCon; there was fifteen hundred people there. Like, oh wow! And we were just like on one small, and that, then it got bought out by Viacom. I don't know if they still yep. own it, and it's just like this huge thing. So it's been like. Before those, it was just, I remember the first YouTube meetup, it was uh, like, it was, it was always like a play on number. So the first one I went to, which I think was the second one was called 777. So it was July okay. 7th, 2007. And we just said, we're going to meet at Washington Square Park. And then these like massive groups of people it. just showed up. And it was like, to watch it become this like, I don't want to say I feel like proud dad, but it's also like just like crazy watching what this space has become, like especially yep. stuff, something like VidCon. So talk about talk about VidCon a little bit. Um, like what was it like interacting? Uh, I'm assuming you met quite a few people oh, yeah. who follow you. And is there, even outside of VidCon, uh, like a viewer interaction that really like yes. sticks out to you and makes impact? Oh, yeah. I love this is going to sound, stick with me through the whole sentence, okay? Because okay. it's going to sound egotistical up front. I love when people recognize me in public and do that thing where like their eyes get big and then they look away and then they're like, that's not right. And then they're like, wait, oh no, it is. 
it is. And then they get excited and then they get scared. And then I notice them notice me. And then I get excited and scared. And then I go, hi. And they're like, I thought it was you. And I'm like, I'm so excited to see you. When I see people who recognize me, it's like, I'm seeing a celebrity. Like I'm so excited to meet followers in the wild. Cause you just can't, you can't believe two, two and a half. I think I'll be at like 2.7 million, like probably by the end of tonight, you can't put that number in your brain as a real thing, Mm -hmm. but you can put it in your brain, the impact you're having, the community that you've built, the place that you exist in and belong to when you are in like Tuscaloosa nowhere and somebody recognizes you and they're like, I watch your show or Northwest Arkansas. And they're like, I watch your show. There's nobody here that I feel in community with, but you know, I actually made some friends from other commenters, you know, or other creators that I follow back and we're all mutuals or whatever, that kind of thing. That is the reason to exist on this platform. Cause it's hard. TikTok is hard. It's, it's wonderful. Like I, I, I was, but at, it's incredible. It is. I was in Breckenridge, Colorado yep. and I was with my parents and there was a truck that was selling crepes and both me and my mom have really strong sweet tooth. So yeah. she, I, I was like, yeah, we're going to go get crepes. And the lady who ran the truck, she like looked at me and she was like, I don't know if this is weird to say, but I follow you on TikTok. Yeah. And I was like, and I looked at her and I was like, no, it's not weird. It's awesome. And if you f- interact with someone, it, it make sure it's the proper environment, obviously, oh, sure, that yeah. you follow and they get weird about you recognizing them, unfollow them. because Unfollow them right away. They have forgotten where they came from. And I see it happen all the time. And that is the trick, right? You have to be here for the right reasons to use that again. Or (laughs) do I get a rose at the end of this? (laughs) We should get a rose at the end of this or it's not going to work. And I think we see that with some creators who have like a big flash and then they sort of like go away or, or they don't follow consistently or they think it should be something more than it is or they complain about the money too much, stuff like that. We're all, I call TikTok the community theater of social media platforms. That does make sense. Yes. I am just a little person from your town and I'm so excited that you came to see me be uh, the featured character actor in this musical. Okay. (laughs) And I'm so excited and you're so excited. And when I see you in the grocery store, I hope you say like, Hey, you know what? You were really good in that 2017 production of Jesus Christ Superstar. And I'm like, you know what? Thank you. Thank you. I really put my heart in it. <laughs> and that is how I feel about TikTok. I really put my heart in it. It is the community theater. We want to see our friends and neighbors and regular people succeed. That's why celebrities don't do well on TikTok. But you you have to be there for the community theater show. You know what I mean? And, and that is the fun of it. So with VidCon... And not knowing anything about it, had never been as a guest, had never known anything. We were all in this hotel that was behind like all these barricades, which was wild to me. Yeah. And then they were like, um, anytime you have to go somewhere, you have to take security with you. And I was like, no, I don't. And they were like, no, you absolutely. I'm not even joking with you. You must. And I was like, nobody cares. And they're like, this entire thing is specifically about people who care on differing levels about you and the other people who are here. And I was like, whoa, okay. So I tested that because I really didn't think that was true. I was like, maybe maybe for Chris or Selena Spooky Boo or like some other of the big creator. No, I was wrong. So I walked out on the floor 
And immediately a, a girl started crying and her mom ran at me. It was like, she watches you all the time. She's really overwhelmed. Will you sign her book? I was like, yeah, of course. And it was fine. But you do get swamped because you're in that environment, right? You're in a fishbowl. And that's the point. And they see you they signing see you. that. And then they're like, who is that? And, and then, then here it goes. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So the thing that I had happened was the Roe v. Wade decision came out the, the second day of VidCon. Gosh. It came out on Friday and VidCon started on Thursday. And so obviously I had done my video. It was very emotional. We had the grief counselor. We had everything that we were doing. And the people who were at VidCon are obviously people who watched TikTok. It was almost all TikTok this time. It was almost all TikTok. Oh, yeah. And uh, so then I got a lot of like a lot of people coming up to me telling me what their feelings were about it and like receiving that with them and trying to keep space, but also like the schedule was insane. insane. Like I moderated like four panels and I, I, I even missed one. I was so embarrassed, but like the publicist was like, no, no, no. It was actually like our fault. We had you scheduled to do these things and whatever. Incredible. Every single TikToker that you love is awesome. Mm -hmm. Every single one that was at VidCon, they're awesome. If they were there, they were great. I, I didn't meet one person that I thought was rude or terrible or or shitty or icky or anything. I met a couple people who thought they were hot shit, but overall were very nice, but nothing, nothing bad, nothing bad. And there was a couple like smaller parties that I got to go to that was like, I felt like I was watching, it was like being inside my phone and walking around. And that was cool. That was cool. Yeah. And I felt like TikTok did a really good job of caring for the creators. Um, there was so many opportunities to network and get to understand different platforms and technology that I didn't know about before. Like I I'd never done a Patreon. I didn't know what discord was. And there was like these little lounges you could go in and I might, might be one of the only people who didn't just pick up the swag and like actually wanted to take the meeting and like sit down and learn and make mm -hmm. the discord lady, like show me how everything works. But it was truly remarkable experience. We'll never forget it. Great time. Loved it. But yeah. Loved meeting people. Loved just seeing the way that, it, this is real life. I think it was mm -hmm. the first time, especially since most of the TikTok creators started in the pandemic, that you got to feel like your online life is real. Here's the thing. I never have imposter syndrome. And I'm going to tell you why. Mm. Because I know who I am as a person. And that's just who it is. I mean, people may project on me what they think under the desk is or what they want it to be. But I'm very... I'm more an observer than a talker. I'm not worried about every single person in the room liking me. I know they're not going to, I'm, you know, it is what it is. I don't ever have imposter syndrome. Like I don't belong here because I just don't choose to go to places that I have a gut feeling I don't belong in. If I'm scared or if I'm seeing a lot of people who are like big creators and da da da, I spent so many years in high-end catering. I've waited on every single celebrity under the sun. Like, I feel like I got very used to that vibe of what being behind the scenes was. And I tend to put myself behind the scenes all the time. So I don't have imposter syndrome. I have, do y'all need help with any of the work around here? Can I work this event mm -hmm. <laughs> instead of be like the attendee of it? But someone, whether it's true or not, someone had once told me that imposter syndrome was something that people made up to make white women even more insecure. And they were probably saying that to me as a white woman, because they knew I would, I would just like immediately accept that as truth. And I was like, yeah, damn the man. I don't have imposter syndrome. I don't have anxiety. That's stuff that people made up to try to I control should, me. I should just smile more and think positive should, and that'll just, yeah, <laughs> I'm like, they don't know me. So I think I, I have this, Thing that I do that's probably unhinged where I just decide how I'm going to feel about something ahead of time. 
And then I just stick to it hard. So if I decide that I'm going to have a nice time at VidCon and I'm going to enjoy just seeing people and just taking it in, then that's what I'll do. And it doesn't matter what that experience is. If that's going to the White House, if that's any number of things, I decide the experience I'm going to have up front and then I just stick to it hard. Mm. And I mean, for me, that works. It's probably pretty unhinged. Uh, no. And not to say that people aren't mean to me because they are. People are very comfortable being extremely rude to me. Mm-hmm. And But I've already decided that I'm here to have a good time. So I just How? How did you? Okay. So like. I'll kind of explain like why I struggle with it a little bit. Yeah. It's because I am um I am a straight white cis male who navigates feminist space, yeah. uh LGBT space. I talk about issues of of race and stuff like that. Yeah. And I've always kind of felt like I was accepted in those spaces, but I could sit yeah. on the porch. I couldn't walk in the house because I right. wasn't one of them. And I understand right. that to a point. So Help me. <laughs> mm-hmm. How, what did you do in your brain or what guidance did you get to get you to the point where you can be like, this is the experience I'm going to have. I belong here. That's it. My grandmother, going back to her, who tough as nails and talk like a drag queen, once said to me, You don't know these people shit. And I was little, right? And I was like, But grandma, I'm not going to be like, good. I'm not going to do this. Or like, What if I don't do that? Or what if they don't like me like this? I was like, Getting ready for whatever. I think it was when I switched high schools um, in my junior year, which I do not suggest to people, but I had to. Mm-hmm. And I had to like make new friends and do whatever. And I was so scared. And I'm like, They're not going to like me. And what about this? And what about that? And she just turned around with her little Salem cigarette and her rollers and was like, You don't know these people's shit. Like, get what you get. You show up. They like you. Great. You show up. They hate you. Fuck them. And I was like, okay. And then I just, you know what? I was like, bet. And you just absorbed (laughs) it. I did. And she would say to me, there are a billion people in this world. If you've run into somebody who doesn't like you or you don't like them, just turn around and meet somebody else. And I, I just think that was such, I'm going to cry. That was such important advice. And she said it without even thinking, you know, but I was listening. So I think that's Mm. one thing that I've taken from her and been mindful of is that people are listening to us and they do take what we say seriously. Yes. And so, you know, I'm careful with what I say to a point, but I mean everything that I say and I'm going to be embarrassed by some of the stuff I say, because you don't always get it right. I think being embarrassed is okay. I think when we try to shame people, that's not productive or helpful. Um, But yeah, that was her advice. And I just kind of like decided that that was true. Yeah. It's it's interesting because like I struggle with that. But then last night, so one of the things I, I think we, as we get older, uh, we have a habit of just doing the things that we're good at. And, oh, yeah. And I hate being bad at things. So I just stopped doing things I wasn't good at. But then I also wasn't growing. Yep. So I started to feel stagnant. So I signed up to do bouldering. I do bouldering now. That's fun. I love it. It's so much fun. And I had breakthroughs last night and I'm just like so jazzed to go back on that wall. Mm -hmm. And I ran into the guy who was the first guy that I met on the first day that I was at the bouldering gym. And he kind of like, we'd followed each other. And I forget (laughs) that it's not normal to have as many followers as I do. And that like people might have questions. Sure. So he's just like, what, what is this? And I was like, yeah, this is what I do for a living. He's like, ah, social media is just like so toxic. And I was like, I hear you. 
And yes, there is elements of that, but it's about where you focus and it's about mm. the way that you frame it. And that's, thank you, EMDR therapy. That like, it was a lot of reframing. I was like, yeah. I could focus on that minuscule amount of people who are screaming at me all the time, or I could focus on the silent masses that are being moved by the words that I'm saying and yeah. having impact. Like, I know that my content has saved lives. Sure. That's, yes. so am I going to focus on those people and, and also those people who are yelling at you, a lot of the reason they're yelling at you has nothing to do with you. It's about, they're probably in so much pain mm -hmm. that- That's one of the things that I also, and I'm such an advocate for therapy. One of the things I learned in therapy is like, you have to decide when something is happening. And sometimes it can be scary if they're yelling at you, but is this person looking for a conversation or is this person looking for a release? And oftentimes somebody will- stitch me out of context and say something shitty or whatever. And I'll respond to it and they will be shocked. I responded apologetic and also be like, Oh, I never thought you would even ever see this. And I'm like, and I had to kind of like learn what that was about too. And that there are sometimes that people are going to use something I said to say something else they need to say. And it really does come from a place of just wanting to be heard and understood. And there's going to be people who will want to stand on you to say that because that's the way they feel it's possible. Um, and there are going to be some people that don't. And there are times when I do something straight up wrong and I'll, you know, the difference when you've done something wrong, intentional or not. And when somebody's just starting a fight with you for clouts. And one, one thing I'm actually very worried about with TikTok, their social justice TikTok had like a call out TikTok moment. I feel like that was sort of earlier in the pandemic there was a lot of call-out TikTok. It was performing very well. And then some of call-out TikTok fell into the womblands. And continue to. Like and all the stuff very, that's going on. And I on. don't get involved there. Yep. So I'm not going to no, say anything no. else about it. That is other people's business, but we know what happened. And then what we saw from there is this idea that being hated also grows your account. And if you are willing, if your goal is to grow your account and have a number, you don't care about the community, you'll, you'll find a way. It's like the WWE. You'll find a way to be a face or a heel. The bad guys in WWE have just as big a following as the good guys. And it's not because people like bad guys. It's because people love to hate your face sometimes. Mm -hmm. And that can make you popular. That is something that I think is very dangerous that I see is like, it's, watch out for that. Don't engage in that. You will never win. It's with out, that. outrage farming. Yeah, that's what I see. Like, you know, there was a, a, t a time where I constantly pulled up my for you page and I hear, why are we giving men microphones? Right. Which was <laughs> difficult as a man with a microphone. Yes. Um, but a lot of the guys I would watch their content, the ones that they were referring to it. I was like, oh, these guys don't even believe what they're saying. They're just saying no, it because they, they know you're going to get mad and you're going to promote them. And they yes. don't realize that they're being manipulated into promoting them. they don't them. care. And the advertisers don't care. Nope. Eyeballs are eyeballs. So you have to be careful with that and understand the difference between, did you make a mistake and you need to be held accountable and sort of right that wrong? Or is somebody decided to start beef with you because starting beef with somebody can be an entire content category mm -hmm. um, on that side? Or is this person doing outrage farming because they know it's going to drive up their numbers because people can't help but jump mm -hmm. in. So I try to just stay out of that. And that is very hard because when people try to start beef with under the desk news or whatever, I guess um, that's hard. Cause I'm like, I, you have to let people say bad things about you that aren't true because if you jump in, 
and you know, they're not true. It's just, it just kicks it right back up. Like sometimes I'll have somebody do out a video of mine completely out of context and say a bunch of terrible, rotten things about me and how I changed after I got my blue check mark. And I'm like, blue check mark, it does nothing, nothing. financially for you. And it doesn't give you any kind of status, truly. Um, it's an exciting day and I celebrated it. I was so excited because it felt like us in the community, we had like done something. We got the blue check. It's cool. I'm, I'm real. Right. But that was about it. And it is hurtful to me when people, you know, come on and and do stuff like that, but you can't engage because it just gives them power. So how do you self-care in those moments? Cause I know it takes you down. I cry so hard. I cry so hard. I could drown. And that is not a joke. (laughs) I cry. I, once I had discovered the power of crying, it became a superpower for me. And I discovered that it was about, it was about 2015 was a very hard year for me. We had a lot of like bad stuff that happened. Like some tragedies happened in my family. My grandmother died in 2015. I just had like things that just felt like I had lost everything. And I remember this one time I was just so sad and I was so frustrated and I was crying so hard that I was like hugging my coffee table because Mm -hmm. I needed to like keep myself grounded to this earth because I thought I was going to die or drown. And I was crying (laughs) so high. I'd never cried this hard in my life. And I remember when I was done, I was like, Hmm. Okay. Well that, there we go. That's what I do. So as soon as I had done that, I had understood the power of crying. And I don't like crying when I get frustrated and I cry in public. That still happens to me. But uh, the power of crying is incredibly releasing. And sometimes that's what you need to do because what has been done to you is tension has been caused and you have to release that tension. Mm-hmm. And you're not actually going to release the tension clapping back at somebody on the internet. You're going to release it, reminding yourself who you truly are. And sometimes you just have to cry for the pain that you feel and the tension that you feel. And then go play some Animal Crossing and, you know, look at a tree. This is a conversation. So I speak privately with a lot of men. There's a lot of men who feel comfortable talking to me about those things that they can't do publicly. Yeah. Um, I I found that like those public spaces where men are trying to work out those things, um, people interject and attack them in those comment sections. So like, because I speak so openly, I have, and I encourage them. I was like, brother, if you don't cry, your feelings are going to manifest themselves in really dangerous ways. And that's never okay. So Mm -hmm. what is okay is expressing those feelings. And, Mm -hmm. and it's amazing. Like they'll cry. I've had them cry with me in person, like give them a hug. And it's just like, they get done with it. They're like, it's good. Like I'm, I'm fine now. And I was like, yep. All right. My brother, (laughs) my brother used to say in his younger years that he thought being a man, I think, the world is very difficult for men 13 to 25. It is a very difficult time to be a man in those years. Yes. And when he was in those years, he would say to me, like, it's just so fucking hard and nobody understands how hard it is. And there's no one to talk about how hard it is because like, Oh, what am I supposed to say? My brother was like six, two and huge and tattooed from his uh, collarbone to his ankles. He's like, what do you, nobody's going to believe that I have that. The only feelings men are allowed to have mm-hmm. are fucking fighting mm-hmm. and patriotic crying. So unless mm-hmm. we're going to start playing the star spangled banner, I'm not right. going to be able to get my fucking feelings out. And I was like, you have said something that the world needs to hear. Yes. The only three emotions men are allowed to have are fucking fighting and patriotic crying. And man, men are so much more complicated and interesting than that. And I, I just, I hope they continue to hear that because they have, you have to give people a place to belong. And if they feel like the only place they belong is within that, 
very narrow set of boundaries for how men, a whole whole ass human is allowed to feel or interact with the world, then we're just going to continue to have these problems. It, it's hard. It's it like it's hard because I want to be sensitive to the plight of women, but on the same token, sure. I'm so tired of being reduced to one thing. Half of the population is reduced to this one thing. And then when you point it out, they say, well, we weren't talking about you, but I don't know that. You just said men as a singular thing and we're a group of individuals. And And so it's like, you can't even have the discussion where you explain like, hey, what's going on right now is actually like, is hurtful. And it's like a gatekeeping pain, essentially. There's only so there's, there's this danger in the finite amount of how much there is. Right. And so women rightfully feel like they have been the most hurt. So they should have the most options for healing. And that is why we see a lot of gatekeeping from certain women when it comes to trans women being included in their mm. spaces or men or non-binary people or whatever the case may be. Um, and that is not something, you know, we're going to solve maybe with those people, but those are the people who control the funding and the spaces. Yes. So, you know, we're going to have to work outside of that and build up in many ways, our own castles that eventually we will have to be inclusive to the people who weren't inclusive to us. Um, okay. I have one final question for you. Gotcha. Um, if you could give advice to yourself when you first started doing social media, started doing this journey with the perspective that you have now, what is the advice that you would give that person? I wouldn't, Mm. I wouldn't, I wouldn't. Um, and I knew right as you were starting this question, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade the things I learned for anything I went into this having no expectation, no education, really barely knowing how to use the tools in TikTok. And I really, I I remember the first time I was lip syncing to something, I thought I was doing it like blind, like I was memorizing the song and doing, I didn't realize that I could like change the sound, (laughs) you know, or stop the video. Um, I wouldn't change one thing about the last two years and the person that I've been able to show up as every single day throughout those two years. because I think I'd ruin it. I think you have to be present and learn the lessons, the good, the bad, the ugly. Um, And in this particular case, if I were to meet myself now, then I would be like, shut up. Don't you dare ruin this. Mm -hmm. We're going to get to do something so cool and unique and scary and unusual. And I think I, I think I would want to keep it just how it was. Yeah. You are the summation of all of your experiences, good and bad. And if you like who you are, why would you take part of that away? Because then you'd be a different person. There are some things that if I knew now, I would go back and I would be like, okay, kid, listen, Yeah, (laughs) this is going to turn out just fine. Don't be afraid of this one. You think this is a big deal now and it's not, but the TikTok journey, I would leave alone. Maybe some relationships in the past, maybe some, uh, some school teachers I wouldn't have been as afraid of, or some, some lies I was told as a kid that I wouldn't believe, but. Like the whole, uh, staring at the screen for too long, your eyes stay that way. Not true. Yeah, not true. Not true. Gum doesn't stick in your stomach for seven years. Not true. No. At least the I don't think The end of bread so. doesn't make your hair curly, you know, what? lies. Okay. That's, that's, another. <laughs> what do you call the end of bread? The butt. Okay. Me too. There was what a do question. You call it the heel. No, thank you. I'd That's rather gross. put a, I'd rather put, I'd a, rather put a butt. Are you going to say I'd rather put a butt in my mouth than yes. a heel? And we just learned so much about Chris Look, just now. <laughs> I'm a very giving man. Okay. <laughs> um, so if people, I had so many, like, 
I knew this conversation was going to go the way that it did. This is, like, I and I had so many other things I wanted to dive into, but you're such an interesting person. We'll do a part two. I would love to do a part <laughs> two. Uh, hopefully this podcast actually ends up like taking off now that I've dedicated yeah. the time to it. Um, yeah. But if people are looking to reach out to you, where are the best places for them to do so? So definitely find me on TikTok and Instagram at Under the Desk News. I have a Twitter that I mostly just shit post on. It's at Vitus Spear. I really, it's a very I'm silly place. I'm going to follow you there now. <laughs> oh, it's it's all shit posting for sure. Um, and then I have the podcast, The Interesting, which is everywhere you get your podcasts. The goal of that is essentially for us to be able to take the headlines that we hear about all week and on Tuesdays, tell you what happened. Mm. What happened to the story after it was a trending headline? We do that on Tuesdays. And on Fridays, I sit down with somebody who's interesting to talk about something scary in a not scary way. That's awesome. Well, so like we talked about monkeypox and we talked about um, Roe v. Wade. And we're going to talk about the airlines and we're going to talk about Can we the House Angels. I just want a break. That's all I want. Just like give me like two days. Okay. Just yep. two days where I can just like not, but that's not really an option, is it? Nope. Nope. That's not how the world works. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for giving me your time and thank you for of being course. a part of Unfiltered Friends. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Chris. Thank you so much to V for being on Unfiltered Friends. Make sure you give them a follow on whatever social media you use. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you share it, tag me and tell me what your big takeaway was. Give us a follow, give us a rating, and I will see you guys on the next episode of Unfiltered Friends.